Welcome to Woking Up. White supremacy. White, white, white supremacy is the fringe of the fringe. This is a mini-series brought to you by Polite Conversations. All of a sudden we can't talk about Neanderthal DNA anymore. Here I'll talk about my journey into and out of being a new atheist Sam Harris fan. In and of itself, in and of itself, that video is not evidence of racism. I'm your ex-Muslim host, Ina. No, not the right-wing kind. Thank you for tuning in. This is how the left will die. Hello again, lovely listeners. Are you ready for episode six? Ready to have your brains melted by some good old rational takes again? Alrighty then, strap in. The last time we stopped just before I wanted to dive into the topic of Sam's favorite feminist. Well, of course you deserve to know more about this hero who he's endlessly defended and promoted. But before we unwrap some of Ayan Hirsi Ali's extremely high-level ideas, let me just take a minute to say thank you to all the wonderful patrons who make this kind of deep dive work possible. Without your support, I simply couldn't do it. It really, really means so much to me. And thank you guys for all your wonderful feedback, your emails and messages and comments. That's what keeps me going. I love hearing from other ex-New Atheisty types and other ex-Sam Harris fans who've started to see through his repackaged Fox News bullshit. It really makes me feel not so alone in the atheist sphere anymore. So keep it coming. I'm actually considering that maybe towards the end of this miniseries, I might do an episode of, like, clips from a bunch of ex-scam Harris fans and ex-New Atheist types. I haven't made a final decision on it yet, but we'll see how it fits in as the series progresses. In any case, if that applies to you and you'd possibly like to be featured, if I do such an episode, then get in touch via Patreon or Twitter or email so I know where to find you. And... As always, if you enjoy the show and would like to see it continue to survive and thrive, then please consider supporting on Patreon. And if you can't do that, you can always support it by retweeting or sharing the podcast. Early on, the episodes come out as Patreon exclusives, but eventually they are released into the wild. Episodes 1 to 5 should be available on all your podcatchers and Spotify too. Anywho, let's get into it. Where were we? Ah, yes. Ayan Hirsi Ali. Sam's idea of a wonderful role model, human rights and women's rights activist. What's she been up to? Well, she's been out there saying embarrassing shit like cancel culture is coming for Ghislaine Maxwell, who was charged with assisting literal convicted child sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein, for fuck's sake. 
and also came out in support of Brett Kavanaugh, who Sam actually had a rare, decent take. But, you know, since they love having difficult conversations so much, their reunion on Ayan's podcast was spent criticizing the left and wokeness and Islam and various minorities. No discussion on the far right or the insurrection or why Ayan the feminist was posting in support of Trump all the way till the insurrection. And this is what Ayan said recently in another interview on Brett Kavanaugh. The disappointing thing was Me Too was now no longer just about giving women a voice who needed a voice, but it was taking those stories and hijacking them for political ends. I don't like what happened to Brett Kavanaugh. That made me so upset. I have to say that uh, I've decided I'm not going to have anything to do with the Democratic Party after that because it was so in-your-face hijacking of that particular issue uh, to get an individual I had never heard of before, never met, never seen, didn't know. And I thought, you know, if you want... uh, to vet a judge for the Supreme Court, you know, subject him or her uh, to the highest levels of vetting, please go ahead and do that. But to accuse him uh, of gang rape, of the things that were going on then, I thought that's not good for women. It's not good for men. It's actually not good for a free society that prides itself on on the rule of law. Yeah, and it, it, it has I, intellectually actually scarred me because I, I just I think of it as wow. I thought these people are just really just as nasty as some of the yeah. politicians that we post to in Africa. Not only that, but she's out there on Joe Rogan engaging in anti-lockdown. COVID downplaying bullshit. And she has the nerve to say that people shouldn't let the left invoke science because they are anti-science. Apparently, if you believe COVID is bad, you have to buy into transphobic nonsense too. But she isn't even internally consistent on that because later in the conversation, she spends time downplaying the threats of COVID herself. Before you got me into your studio, you had me get tested for COVID as you did for others. We, that's objective truth. We have to get tested so that you and I both feel safe and we're here. So we can't, when it comes to science, we can't pick and choose and say, you know, when it comes to certain things that suit me, I agree to objective truth and science. But then when the other things that don't suit me, when I want to pretend that there are 10 or 12 or 1400 gender differences, in that case, science is racist. Racist? What? Has <laughs> she gotten her anti-SJW talking points mixed up? In science is wrong, and there is no science. It's all about subjectivity. And I think it's for the wider population to come out and say, well, you can't pick and choose. And I would say, in many ways, that's the basis of science, is that it's not in anyone's favor. Science doesn't understand ideology. Uh, This virus, whatever it is, the Wuhan virus, I don't care what name you give it. How about COVID-19? 
we didn't know a lot about the virus, but the more we find out, the more we adapt, the more you would think that some of these intrusions into our privacy, into our liberty, that that would, you know, it would stop and we would be able to be free. And in some countries, and even in some states here, people are still insisting that the government has those powers. The government still has control over, my husband is from the UK, and I just asked, you know, uh, who has been to see your mother? We call her granny. Who has been to see granny? Uh, well, uh, daughter and boyfriend, but they were sitting outside. Why can't they sit inside? And he says, well, the rules haven't changed yet. But there's something in me that asks myself, who's enforcing those rules? Not very pro-science there. Yeah. And why, in the age of testing, are those rules applicable? They can't sit inside because it'd be dangerous, and mostly for Granny. Unless everyone in the situation is vaccinated. But this interview is from early March, so she doesn't make that clear at all. But, so why initially, I think we were all in agreement, it was to curtail yes. the virus. But why the rules are still in place when the threat is gone, that's a very good question. The threat is not gone. For fuck's sake, what world are they living in? Well, why wouldn't we understand what the virus is now? The rules were put in place when we thought it was the Black Plague. I mean, we thought it was going to be like the Spanish flu and, and kill a, a vast majority or a large percentage, rather, of the population. It's not, it's not the same thing. It's still terrible for the people that get it and die and the people that have poor health and the people that have underlying conditions and comorbidities, but it's not what we thought it was going to be, but we're still treating it like we treated it a year ago. We're looking at it the same way we looked at it in March of last year. I think what bothers me, you're absolutely right, but what bothers me now is that it's not even possible to have a debate about that. Right. And, and that's, so anytime people say you should be suspicious of government, don't give government any powers because once they have that power, they won't give it back. Yes. I think those people are being vindicated in the sense that, uh, and I would say in the past, no, of course not. If there's no need for government to have that power, they'll give it back. But now this government wants to just skip the power, even yeah. though the threat is gone. Even though the threat is gone. Even yeah. though the threat is gone. Even though the threat is gone. If you're worried about catching it, you can stay home. You can social distance, you can wear masks, you can exercise in the park, out in nature, but you can't because the park's shut, because they're worried about COVID. Like, these are some of the rules that people have had to deal with over this past year. Nonsensical rules, like you can't go to the park. You you can't go to the beach. It's nonsense. And everybody knows it's nonsense, and it's not science-based. When they say follow the science, well, you're not following the science. Because if you did follow the science, you'd let people do anything they wanted outside. Because the science clearly shows it doesn't spread outside. How harmful to give people a full sense of security like this, that it doesn't spread at all outside? I mean, this is not true. As we're going through our third wave here in Canada, we've just heard reports from Alberta's top doctor saying that outdoor transmission has been increasing. I mean, sure, rates of transmission are lower outside, but That's not to the point where you should be able to do anything and everything in as big a crowd as you like. The variants have increased the risk 
even of being outdoors. So this is just highly irresponsible. I mean, they're conflating two very different things here. Yes, it's definitely less risky outdoors. That is clear. But that is very different from saying there are zero risks and that it is impossible to spread the virus outdoors. According to them, it'd be fine to have crowded beach parties all day every day. And no, it it isn't. Well, if you follow the science, you would say, let us have a debate, and you would have an open debate where you let both sides speak out. Yes. What we are now seeing, and it is absolutely horrifying, is that you let one side, the side that's speaking for lockdown, invoke science and say the science says lockdown. But the other scientists who are saying, no, not so fast, and those ones are not allowed to speak. Both sides of the lockdown debate in a fucking pandemic. Really? This is the woman Sam still wants to throw his weight behind. Even now, this is the woman he wants to elevate and uplift as a real feminist, as a champion of human rights, as a logical, rational thinker. A Somali woman, right, who just recapitulated the entire Enlightenment success story of of reclaiming secularism and modernity and humanistic values in her own case in a few short years. I love evolved Christianity because yeah, me too. It, it, yeah, it, it's it's shared all of these. You know, the problem that I have with Islam is it, it's still in its seventh century uh, mindset. Here's our rational thinker doing a video for fucking PragerU. The Judeo-Christian culture and perhaps a more upward civilization has produced over time the law codes, language and material prosperity that have greatly elevated women's status. But this progress is not shared everywhere. Here she is in Australia suggesting that evangelists target Muslim communities and work on converting them all. What a great secular humanist role model. Granted, this was a few years ago, but I haven't seen or heard her retract these absurd recommendations. In your book, you suggest that Christian organisations head into Muslim communities and evangelise. Given that most of the Christian organisations that do evangelise are pretty fundamentalist, wouldn't you just be replacing one fundamentalist ideology with another? I like the applause. And I want to challenge those people who are applauding how they think that they can um, challenge radical Islam in schools, in Muslim centers. You know, how can we win the hearts and minds of those 1.57 billion people to believe in something else other than what the radical Muslims are proselytizing because they are winning the argument and they're working hard to do it. Many people within that demography do not want to become atheists. That is a reality I've come to accept. So given that fact, there would be nothing wrong 
and in fact everything right and maybe a better alternative to military wars, to bombings and law enforcement officials to compete for the hearts and minds of those 1.57 billion people in every way we can. The Christian churches, the Catholic churches and the Protestant churches, the modern ones, are already established and know how to do that. And here she is on CNN. Perhaps it's better for Muslims to move away from Islam altogether and seek a different source of morality. Those who want a God should forsake Allah and find a God like Jesus Christ. You know, I'm not a Christian, but Christ, as he has evolved in the concept of the people who believe in him, has become this cuddly God who is all about love and paternity. And, and I think maybe for those Muslims, especially those who are seeking a better life coming to America, perhaps it's, it's better for them not to just leave their home behind, but also their God behind. Just recapitulated the entire enlightenment success story of, of reclaiming secularism and modernity and humanistic values. Secularism and modernity and humanistic values. It's incredible his inability to look at things critically because he's so blinded by ideology. He is everything he accuses the left of. And To briefly revisit the theme from last time, there's certainly no identity politics or anti-woke tribalism evident in the fact that he won't even care or acknowledge or specifically call out when so many of his own IDW pals have been spreading COVID conspiracies and dangerous misinformation versus how he talks about scientists and public health officials who are apparently capitulating to wokeness because they expressed solidarity with BLM protests last summer. He has fear-mongered about those protests so many times on his podcast, and Reddit user FubsyGamer put it better than I could, so I'll just read out some excerpts from their post. I believe Sam is spreading misinformation and fake news about the consensus of science on BLM protests in the summer. Over the past six months, Sam has brought up the BLM summer protests multiple times as a place of cognitive dissonance in the public and seems to almost always portray the scientific consensus in the same way. He claims that scientists feel like it was of absolutely no epidemiological concern and that there was a breakdown of spreading valid public health information. Here are a couple of quotes of his. This one's from episode 207. Quote, People have been unable to be with their loved ones in their last hours of life. They've been unable to hold funerals for them. But now we have doctors and public health officials and news anchors by the thousands signing open letters, making public statements, saying it's fine to stand shoulder to shoulder with others in the largest protests our nation has ever seen. End quote. And now from episode 233. Quote, there were open letters signed by literally thousands of doctors and public health professionals in support of these protests 
as though they posed absolutely no epidemiological concern. All of the right-wing protests were murderously irresponsible, right? They castigated the right over gathering, unmasked in public. But then we had protests from the left that were aligned with the political priors of most people in journalism, which were an order of magnitude larger and from a, you know, apart from some more mask wearing, definitely looked riskier than anything that was happening on the right, and yet there was not only silence around this, there was absolute support from public health people. This was a complete breakdown of spreading valid public health information, end quote. And then Reddit user FubsyGamer goes on to say, I challenge Sam to read the open letter on his podcast and then read his own comments about the letter and tell himself he's not spreading misinformation. He is hugely mischaracterizing the contents and intention of the letter, which talks of social distancing, wearing masks, staying at home while sick, wearing face and eye protection, and alternate forms of protest. Here is an excerpt. Now, this is from the open letter signed by public health officials. Reject messaging that face coverings are motivated by concealment and instead celebrate face coverings as protective of the public's health in the context of COVID-19. Prepare for an increased number of infections in the days following a protest. Provide increased access to testing and care for people in the affected communities, especially when they or their family members put themselves at risk by attending protests. Support the health of protesters by encouraging the following. Use of face coverings, distance of at least six feet between protesters where possible, demonstrating consistently alongside close contacts and moving together as a group rather than extensively intermingling with multiple groups, staying at home when sick, and using other platforms to oppose racism for high-risk individuals and those unable or uncomfortable to attend in person. Encourage allies who may wish to facilitate safe demonstrations through the following, providing masks, hand washing stations or hand sanitizer to demonstrators, providing eye protection such as face shields or goggles for protection against COVID-19 and chemical irritants used to disperse crowds, providing chalk markings or other designations to encourage appropriate distancing between protesters, supplying ropes which can be knotted at six-foot intervals to allow people to march together while maintaining spacing. Now, do you believe that Sam characterized the letter appropriately? Does it sound like the people who signed this letter felt that it was of absolutely no epidemiological concern or that there was a breakdown of spreading valid public health information or that they thought it was just fine? to stand shoulder to shoulder. I wouldn't have brought this up again, except he keeps repeating the same misinformation over and over. To me, this is a very definition of fake news. Yeah, I gotta agree there. What Sam's doing here is concern trolling. Were his motivations just about the spread of COVID-19, or were they also to do with how much he hates BLM? We can't know what's in his heart, of course. But his lack of real concern and lack of urgency regarding his own buddies spreading dangerous misinformation about the virus makes me think there might be some other motivations at play here. Now, we're lucky that because people were responsible and mostly masking up and outdoors, there weren't massive amounts of cases linked to those protests as far as I know. But it is absolutely untrue that public health officials weren't concerned about virus spread at all. 
And to compare people's attitudes to these racial justice protests, to their attitudes to right-wing, anti-mask, anti-lockdown protests is really fucking bullshit because one of these things is bad and a dangerous cause, and the other is a noble, important, urgent matter of life and death that people should have a different attitude about. And not to mention that many, many people on the left as well were legitimately concerned about the effects of mass protests during a pandemic. No one really knew how it was going to play out, but people understood the differences between anti-lockdown and anti-mask protests and the urgency of these racial justice protests. And you know Sam, he doesn't do identity politics. In fact, he just released a short nine-minute clip recently about how he knows what he's talking about and how people just can't understand that he's on some next level of non-tribalism. Because he meditates, guys. And he just happens to have a handy little app that he sells that will help you join his cult. I I mean, meditate with him and achieve true rationality. No, really. Buy his app. Or, you know, because he's so kind and generous. He will even offer it to you for free. If you need it and ask for it. Not like this is some marketing pitch to most people who will actually buy it or anything. He's just a very generous guy who happens to have just the thing that'll put you on the same rational plane as him. My experience in meditation largely defines my politics, too. And for instance, how can I be so sure that the explosion of identity politics that we see all around us isn't a sign of progress? How can I know that it's an ethical and psychological dead end to be deeply identified with one's race, for instance, and that all the people who are saying that there's no way to get past race in our politics are just confused? Well, because I know that a person need not even identify with the face he sees in the mirror each day. In fact, the deeper you examine your experience, the more you discover that freedom ultimately depends on not identifying with anything, even with how you look in the mirror. You simple wokes cannot even begin to comprehend his magnificence. He is so beyond the identity politics of mere mortals that he's just a floating blob that doesn't even identify with his own face. How much more so is it unnecessary to identify with millions of strangers who just happen to look like you in that they have the same skin color. In light of what's possible, psychologically and interpersonally, in light of what is actually required to get over yourself and to experience genuine compassion for other human beings, it is a form of mental illness to go through life identified, really identified with one's race. It's just a bad dream. Of course, to say that, as a white guy, in the current environment, is to stand convicted of racial insensitivity and even seeming indifference to the problem of racism in our society. Identifying with your race because you're discriminated and judged constantly and specifically based on that? Psh, weak. Float free in space like the wise one who, you know, 
doesn't even experience racism like ever. So is totally qualified to lecture people on the subject. I mean, what greater symptom of white privilege could there be than to declare that we should just all get past race? That's a retort that I believe I can hear percolating in the minds of many listeners. Um, yeah, because it's true. He doesn't even attempt to respond to that. And most well-intentioned people have been successfully bullied by that kind of response. Aw, Sam, you're such a brave hero, challenging the woke orthodoxy of mm, people who don't experience racism ever probably maybe don't understand it as well as people who experience it on a daily basis. How much easier would it be to back down here and just say, sorry, I don't know what I'm talking about, I'm just a white guy. There are massive incentives to take that path. Yeah, definitely no incentives to being part of a far-right, sanitizing, race-science-reviving IDW that sold out auditoriums all over the world. But to insist upon the primacy of race is to be obscenely confused about human potential and about society's potential. And I'm not going to pretend to be unaware of that. Sure, if only we all had the luxury of ignoring race and moving past it. It sure would make things a lot easier if we could do that, except we're reminded every fucking day of racial inequality. It's not a choice people make, you dumbass. It's a response to how they're being treated out in the world. So when I'm talking about racial politics on this podcast, I am also talking about meditation, even though the topic would never come up in that context. And when some of my critics say that I'm just practicing my own version of identity politics, I'm in a position to say bullshit. Based on what? And to be clear, I'm not claiming to be fully enlightened. I'm definitely still a work in progress. But there are certain things that I actually understand about my own mind and about the mind in general. And the idea that racial identity is something that we can't get past is total bullshit. Well, what's stalling us is all the, you know, racism. If we can get rid of that, we'll get past it. You'll never see Sam focusing his efforts in that direction, though. Insights into the nature of mind can't help but touch politics. Over at Waking Up. What I'm building at Waking Up is the laboratory where you can run this same experiment for yourself. And there's really no substitute for doing that. I mean, you can pretend to want to integrate your intellectual and ethical and political life. Or you can really want to do it and to discover all the ways in which you have failed to do it so far. Again, I'm not claiming to have everything figured out. I'm very much in the process of still figuring things out. I'm still figuring things out, but also I am right and everyone else is wrong. Each of us has to negotiate the terms of our disenchantment with who we were yesterday and with the ways in which culture distracts and misleads us. And that's what I'm doing over at Waking Up. So if you haven't checked it out recently, I just want to invite you to do that. Especially if you think you know what meditation is and you think it's not relevant for you. I can virtually guarantee that you're mistaken about that. 
And if you can't afford a subscription... Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can't afford a subscription, he'll even let you sign up for the cult. I mean, app. For free. No one else in the entire universe is this kind and generous. Never before has anyone thought of giving out free samples. That was a strange-ass infomercial for his own app. Completely free of any promotional motivations, of course. Sam is far too unbiased and rational for that sort of thing. (laughs) But speaking of bizarre infomercials, this is not the only one he's put out recently. You see, he's so above anti-woke, anti-left, anti-BLM tribalism that he had on a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy just recently whose family has extensive far-right connections and who literally teaches cops how to do chokeholds. Yeah, Sam had him on to talk about police violence and police misconduct. Who could possibly be a better guest for that topic? I mean, this dude refuses to comment on his family's far-right connections, champions his grandfather's jiu-jitsu prowess, but has no comment on his ties to fascism. And also, according to him, police violence is pretty much never driven by racism in the U.S., but rather by the officers becoming emotionally overwhelmed. An amygdala hijack is how he refers to it. And this entire episode of Sam's was a one-hour, 40-minute-long advertisement for the guy's business. (laughs) Sam really loves those difficult conversations. And by that, I mean he loves having his biases reinforced and having people on to tell him exactly what he wants to hear. They didn't even lightly touch upon the topic of racism and policing, other than Sam making excuses for the cop that shot Dante Wright and said she thought it was her taser right at the top of the episode. People are just misunderstanding the police again and again and again, you see. And you could understand things properly if you just bought his app. And the police could do better if they just had more Brazilian jiu-jitsu training and uh, knew some more chokeholds. <laughs> what a fucking conversation to have against the backdrop of all this police violence making the news right now. And the Derek Chauvin trial as well, which hadn't yet concluded when this conversation was bestowed upon the public. There's been the case of Dante Wright, a motorist who was shot and killed by a police officer in Minnesota. And this, if you've seen the video, it's about as clear as it can be that the police officer, Kimberly Ann Potter, thought she was drawing her taser when she was in fact drawing her firearm. And when she shot Dante Wright, she was horrified to discover that she had her gun in hand. As you'll hear, this is relevant because the police reliance on tasers is not without significant risk. Uh, In this case, risk of the extremely negative outcome of drawing your firearm by accident. But the overall picture here is that our police officers are shockingly ill-equipped to deal with the challenges they face. So when members of the general public believe they're witnessing the murderous sadism and racism of an oppressive police force, In many cases, that's not at all what's on display. That's not at all what's on display. 
for the cops in a way even Pat fucking Robertson didn't. On this issue, even Pat Robertson is to the left of Sam. Huh. Now how she made the difference was she shot that poor guy to death saying, this is what I thought, this is what I thought was my taser and and if you can't tell the difference in the field of those things, it's crazy. Anyhow, she deserves, but I, you know, I am pro-police, folks. I think we need the police. We need the, their servants, and they do a good job. But if they don't stop this onslaught, they cannot do this. You know, the, the police in, in Virginia picked up a, a lieutenant in the Army and began to give him trouble. And, and our, our, our state police are highly trained. But why they don't stop this? And this thing is going on in Minnesota, but the Derek Chauvin, I mean, they ought to put him under the jail. He has caused so much trouble by kneeling on the, the death of George Floyd. It's just, I mean, on his neck. It's just terrible what's happening. And the police, why don't they open their eyes to what the public relations are? They've got to stop this stuff. But even the best cop, the best character, moral character, best values, the best cop on the planet, let's just say, the second they're in a situation that they are not prepared to handle non-violently, they're gonna handle it violently. By non-violently, he means chokeholds, by the way. Yeah, well, not only that, they have a duty to handle it violently. They have a duty to handle it violently. They have a duty to handle it violently. They have a duty to handle it violently because I want to come back to that one detail you brought into play here. So when, when you're dealing with a cop, there's always a gun on the table. I mean, this is something that people just simply do not have intuitions about. So when you see some of these videos where someone starts resisting arrest and they start, you know, pushing a cop or, you know, grabbing, you know, the cop tries to, to restrain someone, tries to start cuffing someone. They start resisting, they start pushing back, they, it becomes a grappling match. Or, you know, the guy's girlfriend runs up and grabs the cop to stop him from trying to cuff the boyfriend or whatever it is. Whenever you put your hands on a cop, this, in the cop's mind, very, very quickly has to be perceived as a fight for his or her gun. That's what will happen if you overpower the cop. In the cop's universe, that is an absolutely bright line that cannot be crossed. And yet in the thinking of so many people who just think they shouldn't be arrested for whatever reason, it just seems like fair play. You know, it's like if the cop pushes me, I can push him back, I can grab him, I can punch him. You know, it's like it's completely inappropriate for a cop at that point to draw his gun and shoot somebody. But 
the cop doesn't know what you're going to do if you knock him out, right? He has to assume the worst. What you're going to do to him and to the, the rest of the public that he's, he or she's pledged to protect. And so the presence of the cop's firearm changes everything. And then there's the additional fact that people have terrible intuitions for what is truly threatening from the cop's point of view with respect to what a person can be doing with their hands. I mean, it's just the moment someone sticks their hands in the, in the pocket of their hoodie or they turn around and grab something off the front seat of their car and they're not following directions, the moment your hands go out of sight, that is a five-alarm fire from the cop's point of view. And it has to be because every cop knows of the case where a half a second later, that hand that just disappeared is now holding a gun and it's shooting a cop in the face, right? And, and all of those videos exist. Virtually 99% of people are unable to rationally interpret what they see when they see these videos of arrests going haywire. Yeah, I really like that, Sam. And I think that it's a very valid point, 100%. You have to reflect on how you have the video in the first place. You've got members of the public videotaping this altercation between a cop and somebody else. And the bias, the default bias from the public is that the use of force by the cop is often illegitimate. So in many of these videos, I don't remember in that one in particular, but in many, you're seeing people basically you know, take the suspect's side of whatever this altercation is and they're shouting at the cop, you know, just leave him alone. But what, what's not happening in these videos, and, and what certainly wasn't happening in that one, were members of the public helping the cop. It would, it would have just taken a few other people to help. Me. You know, granted, this in an ideal world, this wouldn't ever be necessary because the cops would be sufficiently well-trained and in sufficient number to meet any challenge that they're dealing with. But, I mean, here you have a very clear case of this thing is escalating to a lethal use of force and it would have been rendered totally unnecessary if you just had a few other people grab an arm and a leg and, and help the cop you know, de-escalate this situation. At this point, morale is somewhere near an all-time low in police forces across the country just given what has happened to public perception since the killing of George Floyd. So it's got to be a very difficult time to recruit good people to the force. Never been harder. Never been harder, Sam. And I have, my best friends are cops. Like, I have, in every state, from all these courses that we've taught and all these relationships we've made, and I've never heard the, 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 the eagerness towards retirement that I'm hearing right now. They say, Henner, mm. this is not, it's not worth it anymore. It's a lost cause. They've disincentivized us from now controlling suspects, violent criminals. We cannot put the knee on their torso. We cannot put our, our hips. We cannot sit in the most gentle, effective ground control positions. And here's what I said, and as this is all public. I said, New York, watch what's going to happen. By criminalizing the least violent ground control positions that have been used for thousands of years in martial arts of all grappling kinds, by criminalizing the least violent control methods, you are now encouraging and incentivizing the use of more violent control tactics. Taser, baton, firearm. Punches, closed fists, blunt object strikes. You have four cops trying to control one person by their limbs because they're not allowed to put any contact on the torso and controlling someone by the limbs. Imagine trying to get a little kid who doesn't want to go to bed 
and trying to drag them by their arm or leg, and they're twisting and turning. Now they're violently twisting and turning. You can't just grab their torso, pick them up, and walk them to the bedroom and put them to sleep. Do you understand? So it's so as a result, in this particular video that I'm talking about, the cops start punching the guy excessively. And then the video goes viral because of the excessive punches. But the general public sees that video and they don't realize the reason all those punches were necessary, the reason all those punches were necessary, the reason all those punches were necessary was because the, the officers were legally prevented from using more gentle mount controls. They wouldn't have required five officers if they knew basic mount. Uh, and now, because New York City's a lost cause, I'm setting my sights on being very vocal about how disastrous and how counterproductive this, this, this new bill has become and, and warning other states that if they engage in this same type of reform where you just strip officers from these nonviolent control tactics as, a, as really a, a, a gross overreaction to their aversion to neck restraints, really it kind of it all started with neck restraints, right? Oh, neck restraints and then, you know, things happen and there's videos go viral and they say, okay, let's not do anything even touch their torso because the diaphragm, they can't breathe as easily when you're laying on their hips. And as a result of that, you know, it's all downhill from there. This is when a person grabs someone, reaches around their, their throat with their arm from behind and the elbow, the crook of the elbow is now aligned kind of with, with the subject's chin and they are squeezing it's called, as you say, it's, it's somewhat erroneously called a choke. It's actually a, a vascular blood restraint it's, it's somewhat erroneously called a choke it's actually a, a vascular blood restraint it's, it's somewhat er erroneously called a choke it's actually a, a vascular blood restraint you're, you're cutting off the circulation through the carotid arteries and after about six seconds or so the person loses consciousness how dangerous has that proved to be over the course of i mean given what you know Every single day, millions and millions of vascular neck restraints are applied at the, you know, hundreds of thousands of schools around the world that teach jujitsu. Like there's, there's this, this is, this is the safety uh, from a statistical point. You know, you could not. I mean, I don't know. Point zero 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 one percent. I don't know. And it doesn't mean that it hasn't happened of a reported death in practice, right? By someone who knows what they're doing, um, who has any degree of, of training with this, right? This is normally we hear of death when it's used egregiously by someone who doesn't know when to let go. So the amount of pressure and the duration of time that is necessary for someone to to die from the use of a vascular neck restraint is, is substantial. Now, of course, when you consider drug, alcohol use, other medical conditions, those can play a part. But by and large, the, the, the technique has been deemed safe, right? And on all the studies that have taken place and just anecdotally throughout the country and, and, and throughout the world in regular practice of martial arts, these are used all the time. What an appropriately timed conversation, eh? If only cops knew more Brazilian jiu-jitsu chokeholds and mounts. Maybe so many wouldn't have far-right sympathies and racist views and end up disproportionately targeting black people. Really, the sad thing here is that apparently in New York, they've been prevented from making contact with a suspect's torso. And that's what made all those excessive punches, quote-unquote, necessary. I mean, I'm no martial arts expert, but downplaying the potential dangerousness of a chokehold, especially when there are so many variables at play with a suspect versus a much more controlled and less stressful martial arts situation, is just 
so irresponsible. Bill Smock, police surgeon with the Louisville Metro Police Department, has said that these types of neck restraints are dangerous even in police training. He knows of at least three officers who suffered strokes during training when the techniques were used on them. He's quoted in the Washington Post as saying, There is no such thing as making it safe with proper training. Any pressure to the neck is dangerous and can cause serious physical injury, rips to the artery, damage to the internal organs, stroke, and death. I don't care what you call pressure to the neck, it is all strangulation and it is all dangerous. And here's Sam, as usual, bringing just one side of this conversation to his audience with someone who clearly wouldn't be objective because they have a business to promote. Oh, yeah, this is fucking awful. But you know what was even worse than this? Sam's horrendous takes from right after the murder of George Floyd who in fact wasn't killed because of a baton or a gun or a taser or excessive punches. But let's revisit Sam's take from back then. Now, I don't know anything about Derek Chauvin, the cop who knelt on his neck. It's quite possible he's a terrible person who should have never been a cop. He seems to have a significant number of complaints against him. Though as far as I know, the details of those complaints haven't been released. And he might be a racist on top of being a bad cop. Or he might be a guy who was totally in over his head and thought you could restrain someone indefinitely by keeping a knee on their neck. I don't know. I'm sure more facts will come out. But whoever he is, I find it very unlikely that he was intending to kill George Floyd. Think about it. He was surrounded by irate witnesses and being filmed. Unless he was aspiring to become the most notorious murderer in human history, it seems very unlikely he was intending to commit murder in that moment. You see the fucking excuse-making here? How is this relevant? So what if he didn't wake up and think, oh yeah, I want to murder someone today, or what people are upset about is that he did murder someone. It's possible, of course doesn't seem like the likeliest explanation for his behavior. What I believe we saw in that video was the result of a tragic level of negligence and poor training on the part of those cops. Or terrible recruitment, right? It's possible that none of these guys should have ever been cops. I think for one of them, it was only his fourth day on the job. Just imagine that. Just imagine all the things you don't know when you're a new cop. Will someone think of the cops? Please in the George Floyd situation. And it could also have been a function of bad luck in terms of Floyd's underlying health. It was reported that he was complaining about being unable to breathe even before Chauvin pinned him with his knee. And the truth is the knee on his neck might not have been the only thing that caused his death. It could have been the weight of the other officer pinning him down. This is almost certainly what happened in the case of Eric Garner. It seems that half the people on earth believe they witnessed a cop choke Eric Garner to death in that video. That does not appear to be what happened. When Eric Garner is saying, I can't breathe, he's not being choked. He's being held down on the pavement by several officers. Now, being forced down on your stomach under the weight of several people 
can kill a person, right? especially someone with lung or heart disease. In the case of Eric Garner, it is absolutely clear that the cop who briefly attempted to choke him was no longer choking him. If you doubt that, watch the video again. Oh, fuck. Like, I just, I have no words. Now, I obviously have no idea what was in the minds of the cops in Minneapolis. And perhaps we'll learn more at trial. And perhaps there'll be a tape of Chauvin using the N-word in another context. And that'll bring a credible allegation of racism into the case. This fucking guy and his theme of literal N-word tapes as proof of racism. Remember this take from a few episodes ago? In Trump's case, I'm more or less sure that he is guilty as charged. But again, the question is, are these utterances evidence of the crime? And So what utterances are ones that fall into the... I mean, I'm curious. What what has Trump said that makes you think he's a racist? For, the thing that's truly dispositive for me is that, that I believe I know to a moral certainty what he's like behind closed doors, right? And I know that the apprentice tapes exist and that you can hear him using the N-word with abandon, not, you know, like it's linguistics class and he's talking about the power of the word, but he's using it because that's what he calls black people when he's, you know, totally unguarded. So I guess I would be worried about setting the bar at you have to be a celebrity who's taped on camera repeatedly using the N-word, and anything short of that is not... That's not the bar. Anyway, back to his views on Chauvin and BLM. And it seems to me that Chauvin is going to have a very hard time making sense of his behavior. But most people who saw that video believe they have witnessed with their own eyes, beyond any possibility of doubt, a racist cop intentionally murder an innocent man. That's not what that video necessarily shows. As I said, these videos can be hard to interpret, even while seeming very easy to interpret. And these cases, whether they have associated video or not, are very different. The Michael Brown is reported to have punched a cop in the face and attempted to get his gun. As far as I know, there's no video of that encounter. But if true, that is an entirely different situation. If you're attacking a cop, trying to get his gun, that is a life and death struggle, almost by definition, for the cop. And in most cases, it will justify a lethal use of force. And honestly, it seems that no one within a thousand miles of Black Lives Matter is willing to make these distinctions. An attitude of anti-racist moral outrage is simply not the best lens through which to interpret evidence of police misconduct. I've seen many videos of people getting arrested, and I've seen the outraged public reaction to what appears to be the inappropriate use of force by the cops. One overwhelming fact that comes through is that people, whatever the color of their skin, don't understand how to behave around cops so as to keep themselves safe. Ah, yes. If only people understood how to behave better, then cops wouldn't have to murder them. People have to stop resisting arrest. When a cop wants to take you into custody, for whatever reason, it's not a negotiation. And if you turn it into a wrestling match, you're very likely to get injured or killed. This is something that everyone really needs to understand. 
And it's something that Black Lives Matter should be teaching explicitly. If you put your hands on a cop, if you start wrestling with a cop, or grabbing him because he's arresting your friend, or pushing him, or striking him, or using your hands in a way that can possibly be interpreted as you're reaching for a gun, you are likely to get shot in the United States, right? whatever the color of your skin. Strangely, though, and we really have absolutely no clue why, it just so happens, Sam, that black people are the ones being disproportionately shot. I'm honestly surprised that he doesn't just use hashtag all lives matter at this point. And you see, he knows what's better for BLM, better than BLM does. He can see and understand more nuance. Just like with Me Too. He's happy to explain to any hysterical minority that he knows best. Not like he has his own biases or blind spots or anything. We already covered last time that he absolutely does not. Remember, if you too want to learn to be free of identity politics and tribalism and these lowly feelings of us versus them. You have to learn from the master. You've got to get his up. He's ever so consistent and principled. Just look at how he talks about Muslims being radicalized versus how he talks about Trumpians being radicalized. But there are millions of other decent people who have reasonable concerns about a movement like Black Lives Matter. And most of these people probably voted for Trump, too. These people are not racists. They were simply recoiling from charges of racism and from a toxic brand of identity politics. Much of what has been coming out of the left, not everything, but much of it, particularly about race and about law and order and about Islamophobia and terrorism, about issues that are fundamental to the security of our society, has had all the moral clarity and intellectual honesty of the OJ verdict, which is to say none at all. And I'm confident that many people who don't perceive Trump to be a dangerous con man in the way that I do probably voted for him out of sheer exasperation. They were sick of being called racist for not worrying about Halloween costumes on our Ivy League campuses. So millions of these people, along with real racists, told all you whinging social justice warriors at Yale and Brown to go fuck yourselves. And can you really blame them? And can you really blame them? And can you really blame them? I mean, safe spaces, trigger warnings, new gender pronouns, getting Muslim student groups to deplatform speakers like Ayan Hirsi Ali and Bill Maher. Was that the cause of your generation? That's the trench you were willing to die in? Obviously, Islam is not a race. But most people appear to believe that by honestly describing the link between the doctrine of Islam and jihadism, and therefore admitting that Islam is of special concern in a way that Anglicanism and Mormonism aren't, that we will provoke otherwise peaceful Muslims to such a degree that they will become jihadists or support them. Now, this is either one of the most pessimistic and uncharitable things ever said about a community, 
or it's true. And if it's the former, we should stop saying it. And if it's the latter, we should be talking about nothing else and obliging Muslims to talk about nothing else. This is from the pre-Trump era, from one of his AMAs in early 2016. And it was just so striking to see the change in his attitude about people being radicalized, you know? The strawmanning and misrepresentation of the situation regarding Muslims being radicalized versus the bending over backwards to be ultra-charitable to Trumpians. Where are these Muslims who are just like you and me in valuing freedom of speech and secular tolerance and scientific rationality, who want their daughters to grow up to be fully self-actualized members of society, who aren't afraid of cartoons, who think gays should be free to marry, but who, if subjected to an extra glance at the airport or a visit from the FBI at their mosque, will be, quote, radicalized and helplessly driven to support ISIS. They're just like you and me now, but say the wrong thing about Islam on television. And they'll start supporting a group that decapitates journalists and aid workers, rapes women by the tens of thousands, and throws gays from rooftops. That is what is being claimed. That's not at all what's being claimed. No one thinks a perfectly stable, well-adjusted, open-minded Muslim would get radicalized into a full-blown ISIS supporter overnight just from hearing or experiencing some anti-Muslim bigotry. But marginalized communities being further targeted and marginalized and singled out and othered could result in already angry young men feeling more alienated and then possibly being put on the path to radicalization. But, you know, being profiled constantly, generalized as a terrorist, having experiences of your family members being attacked by bigots, those things are really mild in comparison to people who are, you know, members of a privileged majority group. I mean, they're the ones experiencing real oppression. Things like not being able to wear blackface on Halloween anymore, or having to hear about safe spaces or gender pronouns. I mean, that kind of thing, understandably, would radicalize anyone, right? And we all know that being called a racist is way, way worse than being the target of racism. Gosh, Sam really, really hates tribalism and identity politics. No double standards here, nuh-uh. And can you really blame them? I mean, safe spaces, trigger warnings, new gender pronouns. Anyway, Ayan Hirsi Ali just crystallizes how much this logic crew absolutely love and depend on identity politics, which is why, as a sort of continuation from last time, I wanted to zoom in on her for a bit, because she's just such a perfect, perfect example of someone being held in high regard because of their identity, rather than how compelling or intelligent her positions and views are. So, in her previous book, Heretic, Ayan 
took my letter to Ben Affleck that we talked about last time and uh, pretty much published it in full without so much as even trying to ask for my permission or consent and then misspelled Ina on top of that. Pretty shitty thing to do if you are profiting off of someone else's writing, for fuck's sake. But while I was disappointed that she didn't ask if she could almost republish my piece in full, and I would have been happy to let her, I still respected her back then, so I didn't want to make too big a deal about it. Like I did Sam, I used to actually admire her once too, and thought that maybe her critics were being unfair. Wrong. Obviously, I didn't know enough about her back then, and I didn't know what information I could trust. But her getting on Twitter and sharing her bad takes regularly really popped that bubble for me. Because I got to see it firsthand in real time. And, like, almost every fucking take was horrendous. Her recent book now is called Prey. And she's been doing the right-wing IDW podcast circuit to promote it. And boy, this is some wild shit amazing what right-wingers can get published. It's called Prey, and it's about how black and brown migrant Muslim men are coming to rape European white women and erode their rights. I kid you not, it is as bad as it sounds, if not worse. And that's not to say it doesn't happen. Obviously, crimes happen, rapes happen, people of all colors and ethnicities and religions can be bad, but these sweeping generalizations are the stuff of white supremacist propaganda. Ayan has literally written a book now lamenting the lack of racializing in Me Too conversations. <laughs> yeah, that's right. She fucking hijacked a feminist conversation about actual social justice and wants to twist it to fit a far-right narrative. Oh yeah, feminists, why do you not care about the poor white women attacked by men of color? Are they not good enough for your elitist Me Too conversations? Is that why you don't categorize these Me Too incidents by race? Is it because you are classist? Fuck off. I make the point in the book that the Me Too movement was was good because it shone a light on sexual misconduct perpetrated by men against women. But these are middle class and upper class women. And now when it comes to the low income groups and families, uh-uh, it's still taboo. You go back to that intersectionality conversation you just presented, which is, well, you know, immigrant men are punched down on and they're persecuted. And so talking about the plight of low-income women in low-income neighborhoods, you know what? We just don't want to stigmatize these men. Yeah. We feel sorry for the men or more sorry for the men than we feel sorry for the women. And I'm going to add a content warning here because you will hear some graphic descriptions of sexual abuse and some really racist stuff. So proceed with caution. We live in this age of cancel culture where people who call themselves woke are saying our society is divided into those who oppress and those who are oppressed. And the fact that black men, brown men, men of color are oppressing and raping women and groping them. Black men, brown men, men of color are oppressing and raping women and groping them. Black men, brown men, men of color are oppressing and raping women and groping. Black men, brown men, men of color. 
Black man, brown man, man of color. Black men, brown men, men of color are oppressing and raping women and groping them and subjecting them to humiliation. That doesn't fit into their matrix of those who are oppressors and those who are victims because the black man is supposed to be the victim, right? The immigrant, the asylum seeker, the refugee, he is supposed to be the victim. In their ideological framework, they don't have a way of dealing with the subject of prey. They don't have a way of dealing with a man who has escaped violence and civil strife in Syria, who then comes to Germany and rapes an 11-year-old. In their ideological frame, they haven't worked that out. So their, their ideological framework is so rigid. I mean, fuck right off with that. Of course, anyone doing something like that, regardless of race or religion, should be treated as any other criminal in this situation. I'm sure you will find wokest after wokest agreeing with that. I told you it was vile stuff. But in reality, this is actually a lot like the form of identity politics that we were talking about, that right-wingers and IDWers like her and Sam practice. It is because she is Somali, with a tragic backstory, it is because she left behind hardships that white women have to take her seriously, apparently. And isn't it interesting That even though Sam is always going on about how the wokists are preventing us from achieving a colorblind utopia by, you know, noticing things like racism, he's perfectly happy to constantly prop up and defend his race-obsessed buddies like both Charles and Douglas Murray, Andrew Sullivan, and Diane. I mean, how are we supposed to get to this blissful state of being so above identity politics that we don't even identify with our own faces, let alone see color? How are we going to do that if Sam doesn't practice what he preaches and instead spends his days making friendship bracelets for the Caliber crew? She's the victim of the same kind of leftist uh, stupidity, frankly. Her demonization has the exact same structure that Murray's does. And I have spent an enormous investment of time and money, frankly, defending Ion. And here's her and Michael Shermer in conversation. I traffic in ideas as well. I think that's where the action is ultimately. So to that end, let me just kind of wrap up asking you, why don't feminists like you? Or why don't they consider you a fellow feminist? It's almost like everything gets erased. Of all the boxes we tick together, they all get erased if you're not on board with this one thing right here. And that seems to be the case with with you. Yeah, and I'm not the only one. Again, uh, it's my friend, one of my best friends, Christina Hoff-Sommers, oh, yeah. uh, Camille Paglia, you mentioned Heather McDonald. There are a lot of feminists who are confident that uh, as women, we want to be treated as individual human beings, uh, equal before the law, not the same, equal before the law. Uh, and actually, uh, we as feminists, we do appreciate our differences. I appreciate the fact that you're different as a man. Um, 
your outlook, your energy, all sorts of things are different. Love to be an advocate of science, logic, and reason, and appreciate the differences in male and female energy. But I think uh, the, the feminists who are setting the tone, who probably have been setting the tone since and 60s, 70s, um, they are feminists who see themselves in some kind of dead-end competition with men. You know, you men, you oppressed us for all of these centuries, now it's our time. Ah, yes. MRAs are the real feminists, and fake, woke feminists are just on a mission to oppress men now. And this black and brown men raping white women trope is white supremacy 101. Here's some of what she said in her interview with Brendan O'Neill from Spiked about it. We're not going to resolve these issues overnight. It's going to take a long, long time. But we can start the project of socializing, of civilizing these young men. And it's going to, in the end, it's going to be good for them too civilizing these young men and it's going to in the end it's going to be good for them too civilizing these young men civilizing these young men civilizing these young men in the end it's going to be good for them too in the end it's going to be good for them too Literally talking about a project to civilize these migrant men from the Middle East and Africa. It doesn't get more blatant than that. Fuck. Civilize. Like she actually said this on air. I cannot emphasize enough just how dangerous this kind of talk is. Literally following the Nazi playbook on how to dehumanize an entire group of people. If you're familiar with Julius Streicher, the Nazi propagandist, founder and publisher of the viciously anti-Semitic paper Dar Sturmer, that Hitler declared was his favorite paper, by the way, you'll know that one of his constant themes was the sexual violation of ethnically German women by Jews. He detailed graphic acts of abuse to get people worked up and emotional and angry to stoke vicious hatred. Here are some short samples from her book, Prey, where there are entire chapters that she just describes migrant crimes in graphic detail or just reads cherry-picked stats about migrant crimes. And the whole thing is like this. It is horrifying. Just please be warned that this is incredibly graphic, awful, awful stuff. And anyone can cherry-pick and focus on any group's crimes to make it seem like they're the ones doing all the horrible things in a place. This is just highly manipulative, dangerous stuff that could be used to justify all sorts of atrocities. So please bear that in mind while you're listening. have told her that they are reluctant to take the subway lines alone where many young Muslim men are traveling. Sometimes they take detours because there are too many nuisances. 
sexual assaults take place almost daily in certain subway lines. She says that the situation for women is getting worse. German public transit is losing its reputation for safety, even at funfairs. In an almost comical incident, police in the northern German town of Steinfurt reported a group of 10 immigrants harassing and groping teenage girls as they drove bumper cars at the village fair in March 2018. It's farcical that even a dodging ride is no longer safe for women in Germany. However, with only four years of primary schooling in Iraq, the 30-year-old struggled to find work in Germany. On a Saturday night in November 2016, Ali D. joined two people from his temporary accommodation to drink and socialize with a group in Hamburg's central square, the Rathausmarkt. One of the group was a 13-year-old girl. They drank vodka and partied until the early hours. After 2 a.m., members of the group peeled off and Ali D. walked to the Jungfernstieg train station with a few of them. Security cameras at the train station recorded him dragging the 13-year-old girl into a dark room. A temporary structure built as part of construction works taking place at the station. The low ceiling and angled corridors blocked visibility between the platform and passageways. Ali D pushed the girl to the floor, which was dusty and dirty. A court report spells out what happened next. The accused tried to kiss the joint plaintiff, and she turned her head away. He grabbed her breasts under her clothing, pulled down his and her trousers and underpants, pulled her legs apart with force, pulled his penis out of his underpants, and penetrated vaginally into the body of the plaintiff, who had no previous sexual experience, and in particular, never had sexual intercourse before. The accused had unprotected intercourse with the joint plaintiff until ejaculation, while the plaintiff cried and screamed in pain. After the ordeal, the girl sought help, and a police officer found her crying and trembling at the station. A gynecological exam confirmed that Ali D's sperm was present in her vagina. Six months later, the girl still suffered physical pain and struggled to interact with men, including her male school teachers. reported that a Turkish asylum seeker known as Emrah T was being tried that day in a Munich district court for the brutal rape in late 2016 of a 45-year-old woman who had been jogging in a park. Data privacy provisions are invoked to prevent crime data from being disaggregated by migration status or ethnicity. tall, blonde Bavarian lady in her late 60s. As a retiree, she told us, she enjoyed watching court cases and had seen a lot of them. We asked if the nature of the cases she watched had changed at all in the last three years. She immediately answered, yes. 
There are a lot of asylum seekers and refugees, like the guy today in court for assault, she said. She had noticed immigrants being tried for a whole list of crimes, ranging from drugs and theft to violence and sexual assault. Not to mention, much of it is just anecdotes like this, where she'll weirdly point out the blondness or blue eyes of someone local. She also makes sure to point out that someone is a black man or a Somali man or Muslim-looking when talking about the criminals. A 29-year-old woman was sexually assaulted by a black African man in his 20s near a church on a Sunday morning. The man grabbed his victim from behind, pushed her to the ground between two parked cars and assaulted her. In August 2018, a 19-year-old Somali broke into a retirement home in Hala, central Germany. He sexually assaulted one of the residents, a 74-year-old woman, simply because he wanted sex. He threw his victim onto the bed and beat and choked her, pulling his trousers down in order to rape her. Arab-looking men addressed me in broken German with the words, You can't. It was a Sunday morning. One Swedish newspaper did track down the 58 individual gang rape cases heard in Swedish courts between 2012 and 2017. It found that of the 112 males convicted, 70% were under 20 years of age, three-quarters had been born overseas, and 41% of those were asylum seekers. Swedish public television aired a documentary on the immigrant share of convicted offenders of sex crimes based on court rulings between 2012 and 2017. In all... 58% were foreign-born. Of 129 convicted for assault rape, 110 were foreign-born. Of 94 gang rapists, 70 were born outside Europe. Even without continued immigration, Pure Research expects Europe's Muslim population to rise to 7.4% by 2050 because Muslim women tend to have more children than other Europeans. In true Harris fashion, though, she adds a sprinkling of this to give herself some weak defense against accusations of spreading dangerous, racist, bigoted bullshit. But come on, who the fuck is buying that? After hours and hours of hearing her black and brown men are coming to rape white women stuff. The point of this book is not to demonize migrant men from the Muslim world. Yeah, but actually, that's exactly what the point is. Rather, it's to better understand the nature and significance of the sexual violence that has occurred in so many parts of Europe in the recent past. 
its political salience. Put simply, evidence of sexual misconduct by some Muslim immigrants provides populists and other right-wing groups and parties with a powerful tool to demonize all Muslim immigrants. If we bring this issue out of the taboo zone, discussion will cease to be monopolized by those elements. Hate to break it to you, Ayan, but you might be included in, quote-unquote, those elements. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get back to her promotional podcast chats about her book. And I'd also like to emphasize here that as someone purporting to care about women's rights and sexual abuse, Ayan went on alleged serial sexual predator Michael Shermer's podcast to promote her book. (laughs) You know, the guy who... (laughs) just happened to also publish an article sorta just asking questions, sorta defending convicted pedophile Jerry Sandusky in 2018. I mean, imagine talking to accused rapist Shermer, defending accused rapist Brett Kavanaugh in the same conversation and complaining about the lack of racial categorization of sexual assaults in Europe. The absolute fucking nerve. And Shermer himself had some very creepy-ass remarks in his conversation with Ayan, considering just how many accusations have come out against him, ranging from groping to rape. Anyway, back to the difference between men and women. So you know that joke about um, uh, women need a reason to have sex, men need a place? Oh, yuck. And this now is him talking about how Western men have managed to keep their male urges in check compared to the primitive migrants. You get these men coming in, and they haven't been—they haven't inculcated uh, the Western values. They—they they just grew up in a, in a completely different culture. Maybe it's not really their fault, uh, you know, and they just don't know any better. Um, so let, let's just think about um, how you tame that inner beast. You know, what are the things that that we've done in the West over the centuries that uh, that, that have kind of kept in check those male urges? that we could possibly teach or inculcate into or, you know, whatever, as you you talk about integration or assimilation uh, of people that that didn't grow up with that. Like, what a condescending comment and a fucking broad brush to paint migrant men with. And as a multiple-time accused predator, maybe don't talk about the superiority of your male urge-controlling abilities when you're known for the exact opposite. We're not having sex tonight. That's it. And the guy understood, yeah, okay, we're not having sex, but at least I can try. I could try to seduce her or whatever, be charming. But, but they... They probably were not going to have sex. So her concern is that the, 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 the default setting has shifted now. That men now think, well, we're going to have sex. And the women, if they don't want to have sex, they have to talk him out of it. And this is hard to do if you're at a frat party and everybody's been drinking and so on and so forth. Ah, if you know the details of the allegations against Shermer, this is especially horrifying to hear because he was accused of having non-consensual sexual contact with women after plying them with drinks while not drinking himself but pretending to. So the fact that he says it's hard for women to talk men out of having sex if they don't want to when everyone's been drinking is chilling. But yeah, that's who Ayan is complaining to about Me Too and black and brown men. If your irony meters haven't exploded yet, um... 
She was also on Peterson's podcast promoting her book recently and had nothing but the highest praise for him. And she praises the West for giving women a life where you can read as many books as you want and sleep with as many people as you want and compares critical race theory or wokeism to an alarming rejection of the fruits of modernity. Like, imagine saying this to Jordan B. Peterson, who literally has said he doesn't know if men and women can work together, that women are hypocrites if they wear lipstick and high heels and don't want to be sexually harassed, that birth control pills fucked Western civilization, someone who self-identifies as a terrified traditionalist. Imagine fucking complaining to him about how wokeness is a rejection of the fruits of modernity. I I can give you a whole list of things that I didn't have, and I even took it for granted that I didn't have those things, and then come to free societies, and then you can read as many books as you want, you can befriend whoever you want, you can sleep with whomever you want. People who are born and raised here for generations have decided that they are disappointed in modernity. They call themselves postmodernists or critical race theorists or whatever you name it. But this is ideology that's taking on. Uh, you can see it in newsrooms, in you know, publication houses, uh, tech world, and there is an alarming rejection of the fruits of modernity of free speech, of all the things that that I was impressed with when I came to the West. Complaining to this guy about rejecting the fruits of maternity. With the birth control pill, women become more like men, much more like men. And also, it seems to be the case that women on the birth control pill don't like masculine men as much. There's studies showing that, for example, if you show women the face of of the same man at different, or the, the same men at different phases of their ovulatory cycle, and all you do is widen the jaw or narrow the jaw of the men, that the women at the peak of their ovulation, where they're maximally fertile, like the wide-jawed men better, but when they're uh, infertile, they like the narrow-jawed men better, and wider-jawed men have higher levels of testosterone, and and the pill mimics infertility, and so, you know, we don't know what these radical biological hormonal transformations have done to the relationship between men and women, and, and you know, women, too, are trying to experiment with their new mode of being. It's like, well, now they're not destined at an early age to become, to transform themselves into mothers. Or to be, or to allow themselves to be transformed by nature into mothers, even though it's possible that they might be much happier if that happened. I thought for a while that it would be useful for the, for the, for 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 for, for the political systems, people who are running the political systems, to consider doing something like cutting the funding of universities by 25 percent and letting them fight over the remains, and hopefully what that would mean. Hopefully that would mean that the pseudo-disciplines such as women's studies, which never had a methodology to, to, to methodology that was credible to begin with, and I would put in the same classification all the ethnic and racial studies groups that are popping up on campuses like MAD under the guise of, of, of true disciplines, which they're not in any sense of the imagination, but also, or any sense of the word, but also increasingly the social sciences and the general humanities that have been corrupted quite terribly by the postmodern doctrines. I thought, well, maybe it would be good to see if the funding could be cut for them. 
Ah, yes, no one loves modernity and free speech quite like Jordan B. Peterson. So that was part of the big 60s experiment, and it isn't obviously obvious that that went particularly well. Um, it certainly led to the pornographication of our society, which I think is, I really think is actually quite dreadful. Um, maybe that's my innate prudishness, but to me that pornography demeans the participants as well as the viewers. There's something second-rate and furtive about it, and I think that everybody who engages in it knows that. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a substitute for the real adventure of life, and I do think that it leads to a certain kind of, uh, perhaps, contempt. It leads to contempt, I would say. Again, so sorry about the quality of the audio in those clips, but that's in Peterson's original audio, so nothing I could do about that. She ended her conversation with Peterson, which was a quest to demonize immigrant men with, let's not demonize one another and how we should coexist. But what about those scary migrants, eh? Don't want to coexist with them. Once again, this absolute clown is the highest form of feminism for Sam Harris. Never forget who he spends his time and resources propping up. She's certainly very useful as a minority friend. And aside from her migrant demonizing, she has big brain takes like this. How could you not absolutely love her? They, they don't want to define what racism is. The old definition that we had that led to actual changes for black people and other people of color, they've rejected that out of hand. Mm-hmm. They say now racism is everywhere. Right. It's in between the cracks. It's under your bed. Every, every white person is racist. If every white person is racist, then you would conclude that no one is. So the time becomes so promiscuous, it becomes meaningless. I think, first of all, just by telling only one side of the story, the story of um, the, what is making a lot of people in the West feel guilty and that they feel that they have to atone for, the colonization, the slavery, the segregation, all of these well-documented terrible things that Western societies have engaged in, that is one side of the story. But there's also another side of the story. And the other side of the story is that it is Westerners who took the initiative among humanity to change all of that, to end slavery, to end segregation, to aspire for equality. So if you're going to tell the story, then it's better to tell both sides of the story. Now for the people who tell only the negative side of the story, who are toppling statues and saying, the only way to redeem Westerners is for them to destroy everything and start all over again. Wokists won't ever highlight the good bits. Like, for example, the people who started segregation and slavery over here, in fact, also eventually ended it. You'll never see them thankful for that. Always so negative. I mean, if someone does a murder or something, why focus on just the part where they did the murder? Why not be fair and rational and also mention that they were the ones to end the murder too? Because it was done. What the wokes want is for everyone to always focus on the negative. Seriously though, 
This argument is so meaningless. You could say the same about anyone who criticizes anything. You could absolutely say the same about how negative these guys are about the left and social justice. You could say the same about how Ayan portrays such a narrow and one-sided view of Muslims and Islam. Ayan Hersiali is Sam's hero, the only person he's ever sent fan mail to, in fact. But don't you worry, he's her hero, too. I wish we had all our young men on the Sam Harris level of civilization. I wish we had all our young men on the Sam Harris level of civilization. I wish we had all our young men on the Sam Harris level of civilization. <laughs> oh boy. Not everyone can be on the race and IQ level of civilization now. Come on. Let's hear some more of what feminist icon Ian has to say. As Camille Paglia, I hope I'm pronouncing her name. That's right, right. yeah. As she points out, yeah, Camille Paglia, she, she, you know, points it out over and over again, you know. We still are actually animals. <laughs> and so... Even even though we think of ourselves as the most civilized species of animals, we still are animals. And it would be um, prudent if young females uh, took responsibility for uh, some of the choices that they make. Some of what is now being called feminism is taking agency away from young women and women in general and putting it all on the male. And I think that formula is not going to work. I think what's going to work, common sense, is that you um, put a lot of responsibility on the young man, enhance it, encourage that's what, that what is good in him. Uh, that is the story of chivalry, of honor, kindness of manners all that stuff but you also have to put some responsibility and agency on the young woman on the female that she has to say you know now what this is now my last drink i'm now going back to my own dorm take responsibility for the things that you do take responsibility for the things that you don't do that was the original case for feminism is that we wanted to be treated as equal human beings. We didn't want favoritism. We didn't want a special treatment. We just want to be equal. Yeah. And when I use my race, my skin color, I don't want to be treated differently. I just wanted to be treated as equal. Equal before the law. Equal in our norms and, and uh, written and unwritten rules. Uh, not to get an opportunity to persecute the other side because in history, we persecuted one group or the other. Right. Now, how is this different from what was she wearing type of crap? Or how short was her skirt? How much did she drink? It seems that according to Ayan, a woman expecting to not be raped if she's drunk and not in her own dorm room is just asking for special treatment. Why don't women try encouraging chivalry and kindness instead of making a big fuss about rape on campus? Hashtag real feminism. 
On a personal level, you can and will make decisions that you think will make you safer as a woman. It's an unfortunate reality around the world. Believe me, I know that all too well as someone who often walked back to my apartment from campus with my keys laced between my knuckles or with a friend or with campus security service. But as a broader general public message, the responsibility should not be on women to not get sexually assaulted. For fuck's sake, I'm sorry, but it shouldn't matter how much a woman drinks or what she wears or whether she's at a party late into the night. None of those decisions should affect the fact that she has every right to be where she wants and do what she wants and not be raped. How about we tell men to take responsibility and not be sexual predators? That would be the feminist message that I'd put out there. But anyway, let's put a pin in that and just hold on to this quote of Ayans in your head, eh? The whole women should be responsible for themselves stuff. And you see, citing Camille Paglia is yet another feminism win. Let's take a quick look at who this feminist inspiration of Ayans is. Well, this is a woman known for saying things like, sometimes no means not yet, and also known for her literal fucking defense of NAMBLA, that is North American Man-Boy Love Association. In 1993, Paglia signed a manifesto supporting NAMBLA, a pederasty and pedophilia advocacy organization. In 1995, in an interview with noted pedo advocate Bill Andriette, she said, I fail to see what is wrong with erotic fondling at any age. In 1997, in a salon column, She said, and I quote, I have repeatedly protested the lynch mob hysteria that dogs the issue of man-boy love. In Sexual Personae, which is one of her books, I argued that male pedophilia is intricately intertwined with cardinal moments of Western civilization. End quote. She's also noted in several interviews that she supports the legalization of certain forms of child pornography. She later sort of changed her mind on this, but only because it's, and I quote, impossible to reproduce the Athenian code of pedophilia. In 2017, she called climate change a sentimental myth unsupported by evidence. That's who Ayan admires on feminism. Honestly, this stuff is crazy-making. Now, remember that quote I asked you to keep in mind? It would be um, prudent if young females uh, took responsibility for uh, some of the choices that they make. But you also have to put some responsibility and agency on the young woman, on the female, that she has to say, you know know what, this is now my last drink. I'm now going back to my own dorm. So, in another recent conversation, she says this, completely contradicting what she said before about women taking responsibility for themselves and making decisions accordingly. Uh, That's exactly what I'm trying to say in the book, that there is this shift where we 
took it for granted in some of these European countries that women were safe in the public space and now that's not the case and some of these women are they're coping they're adapting to the new environment and this uh, unsafety in the public space by avoiding certain streets certain neighborhoods by strategizing before they leave their homes how they are going to be safe. Now, how is that different from the wise words of Camille Paglia, where she said that women ought to take responsibility for themselves? I mean, I really wish women didn't have to do this sort of thing ever. I wish that we could walk wherever we wanted, whenever we wanted, without feeling unsafe. But I'm not the one advocating that women should learn to take responsibility for their own actions and go back to their own places and stop drinking, etc. Instead of consistency, I guess the rule here is that, quote-unquote, taking responsibility and making decisions like going back home early is good when you're doing it in response to poor, persecuted Western frat boys, but bad when you do it to feel safer from non-Western migrant men who are all frothing at the mouth rapists anyway. And Shermer asks why feminists don't like her. Well, I can't imagine why. I mean, sure, she mirrors some Salafist mullah slash Gwyneth Paltrow rhetoric about appreciating the differences in men and women's energies. And ironically, this line is how they justified modesty garments for women in Islamic school. (laughs) That because men and women are different, women need to be protected like a precious jewel from the male gaze. But come on, why do you wokeists have to focus on the negatives? What about all the times Ayan is not spouting nonsense? Like the times that she's asleep? (laughs) Anyway, I think my job for this episode is done. We've proven today, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that there is simply no better feminist in the entire universe than Sam's favorite, Ayan Hirsi Ali. The rational one, as usual, has been right all along. She has been so unfairly criticized by the left. I mean, I can't see a single reason why anyone would take issue with her brilliant and fantastic ideas. Thank goodness for Sam. If we didn't have him to set us on the right path, imagine all the high-level ideas we'd be missing. She's just a true feminist success story, right? All right, all right. Jokes and sarcasm aside, do you, dear listener, sense a theme here in the kinds of people that totally not right-wing Sam greatly admires and puts stock into, uses his platform to prop up, etc., and the kinds of ideas they spread and how conveniently useful his non-white friends are in spouting right-wing and even far-right talking points at times. That way, he only occasionally has to soil himself by saying something as far-right as Ayan. And he can continue to try and maintain plausible deniability, respectability. Of course, he's not interested in race and IQ. He only just keeps accidentally having people on to discuss it. 
<laughs> he can say that shit, and gullible people, unfortunately, continue to buy it. While he just puts all his efforts into signal boosting and championing people of color that say the absolute worst racist and racism denying or downplaying stuff. And when called out, he can just hide behind their skin color or their Muslimness. Checkmate wokists. Such a principled hater of identity politics, that guy. <laughs> I mean, that is such a core part of what he does and what he spreads and who he promotes. Don't you dare accuse him of being a bigot. Why, just look at all his diverse, bigotry-spouting friends and associations. Anyway, as always, let me know what you thought of the episode. What was your favorite feminist moment from icon Ayan Hirsi Ali? And believe me, there is so much more to cover with her. I thought about maybe doing a review of her book for my other podcast, Polite Conversations, at some point. Let me know if you'd be into hearing such a thing, because that way I can gauge if there's interest in it or not. And thank you for listening to what I believe is the longest episode of Woking Up so far. Uh, I thought as I got into it, I'd have less and less to say, but diving into Sam has been like unraveling a hideous sweater that just keeps going and going and going the more you tug at that thread. Anyway, till next time, friends, I will leave you with some not at all hilarious or ridiculous words from the master meditator who can overcome his humanness through his magical meditations. Yes, it is possible to be free and happy in almost any circumstance. I believe that is true. If you put me in solitary confinement, I know that I could be happy. Given what I know about my own mind, that is true. And that is an immense strength, born entirely of meditation. And it's available to everyone. Thanks for listening to Woking Up. You can support this show by sharing it or via patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian Mangoes. And a special thanks to Intellectual Dark Wave for helping out on the musical front.